In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. Golf Breeze is a beautiful vacation spot for aliens. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. If the UFO photo looks too good to be true, it probably is. Anything goes in Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Listening to UPRN 105.3 New Orleans. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our guest, Dr. Bruce McAbee. Please welcome to Paratopia, someone we are both very excited about. That would be Dr. Bruce McAbee. I think the first question I have for you, Bruce, is. Um I, I, I'm pretty sure most of our listeners are pretty familiar with the Ed Walters side of Golf Breeze, um, mm-hmm. with with all of the books that that you co-authored with him and ones that he wrote on his own with his wife. Um, but as far as Golf Breeze, the area goes, how far back do UFO reports actually go in that area? Um, I've, I've got one here that uh, I wrote a paper on a long time ago that. Um, as far back as I went was 1952, and that was with yeah, well, the the Warrington Navy man that reported seeing lights around that area. So, is that the earliest? I, I didn't uh, try to make a uh, search of the of the earliest. I know that um, when I uh, compiled a list of sightings in the area, uh, you know, many years ago. Um, there were, it was sort of a, a, a typical sighting concentration or lack of concentration between before November 11th, 1987. Okay. When all heaven or whatever broke loose. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I think there might have been a dozen and a half or two dozen sightings before then. Okay. There wasn't any, certainly wasn't nothing to write home or to write to Gulf Breeze about. So nothing more than your average, you know, uh, suburban area uh, type place. I mean, it was fairly, fairly routine up to that certain point. Right. Okay. Um, do you or have you heard anything about a man named Clarence Patterson in 1973? Um, uh, this was the guy who claimed he was picked up in his pickup truck by a UFO while he was returning to Pensacola. From Mobile, does that ring a bell to you? No, it doesn't ring a bell. Um, Sorry about that. Uh, no, no, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I know that. Uh, uh, let me see here. A list of sightings that I compiled. Well, it goes only back to '73. Okay. Seventeen listed between '73 and, and October '87. Huh. 
Okay. And on November eleventh, nineteen eighty-seven, there were like eight sightings starting at two o'clock, two thirty in the morning. Okay. Uh, the one you were talking about was when? Uh, that was October nineteenth, nineteen seventy-three. Guy's okay, name was well, Clarence. October fourteen to seventeen, seventy-three. Okay. Many sightings of glowing white lights. And I guess the next one up from seventy-three would be the. I don't know how you say this. If it's it's E G L I N, is that Eglin? Eglin Air, Air Force, Force Base. Base? Okay, uh, February second, nineteen seventy-six. Um, I've got one. In, I've got one listed for seventy-four. Okay. One for seven, two for seventy-five, and one for January of seventy-six at Eglin Air Force Base. So that must be where we can connect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One thirty-one seventy-six, nighttime Eglin Air Force Base personnel move right. made, but upon development was found to contain no UFO images. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that was the one I think I I think uh, someone had talked to it was Lieutenant Steve Phelan, and he was with the Eglin Information Office. Yeah, how long that I compiled this collection? I don't remember the sightings before November eleventh. Right. Um. Well, I mean, suffice it to say, there probably was you know some pretty weird activity in that area before Ed Walters, but Ed Walters was really where everything really broke open wide. Well, um, but here you've got. But I say 17 sightings uh-huh. that I had recorded between 1773 and 87. And then in 1987, starting in uh, November, uh, by the end of the year, there are probably a dozen and a half sightings. Right. In that short <laughs> period of a month and a half. So. Right, exactly. Um, so uh, just to kind of give our our listeners kind of a brief overview of of what went on with Ed like his first sighting for instance what uh what did he say that actually happened well uh, you should understand that the first sighting on November 11th the beginning of this flap occurred at 2:30 in the morning when a lady Billy Zamet heard her dog barking and by the way I have read a number of sightings since then which start the same way a person's dog inside the house starts barking. They take the dog outside, and guess what? The outside isn't normal anymore. Uh, so anyway, Billy Zammett took her dog out for what she assumed was a typical reason, and instead of doing anything that she expected, the dog looked up in the sky and started barking some more. So she looked up in the sky. She didn't start barking, but her first thought was, they're coming to get my dog. <laughs> <laughs> she said she saw this big round thing, which was, and she claimed that it was like what Ed photographed with a beam of light, what she called a pathway of light coming down to her dock. And uh, her first thought was, they're coming to take my dog. <clears throat> and she picked up the dog went back into the house. And her next thought was, well, I'll tell somebody about it in the morning. Then in the morning, she decided better, uh, probably better to not say a thing about it at all. And she wouldn't have if it hadn't been for Ed's pictures published in the uh, uh, local paper uh, a week and a half or two weeks later. But anyway, that occurred at 2.13 in the morning. Then another guy uh, by the name of Thompson had a sighting that occurred at 8.15 in the morning. At 5 o'clock at night, the uh, former editor of the paper and his wife saw this object uh, traveling in the vicinity of Gulf Breeze at an uh, estimated five, uh, five minutes or so after 5. Ed himself saw it. And then after Ed's sighting, there were several more before the, the day was over. Huh. Now, Ed's first sighting in particular was he was sitting in his at his desk uh, in a room that uh, looks towards the uh, uh, looks towards the west, 
and uh, he the trees and tree line. I, I've been to the house. As a matter of fact, I was there just back in February when the UFO hunters did a, a series on Gulf Breeze. I don't know if you saw that or not. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes. Um, so anyway, he saw this strange object coming, approaching uh, his house, up obviously up in the sky, and he, he sees the thing coming along, he realizes it's not a helicopter or an airplane, and it, it was something really strange. Um, so he, his first thought was to call the police, and then he decided that didn't make any sense because it could be gone. It seemed to be traveling along at a continuous rate, so it would be gone by the time the cops got there. And uh, he decided instead to uh, run get his uh, Polaroid camera, an old-fashioned type of Polaroid that um, you had to pull a film out and then wait for 60 seconds for a picture to de completely develop. Um, you could take pictures more rapidly than that, but you'd have to keep pulling out these tabs and uh, letting the film... You don't have to totally let the film develop before your next picture. Um, but it takes some time to pull the tabs out. It's not as not like an automatic camera nowadays. Yeah, this is anyway, not the uh, this is not the type that you 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 pull out and you lay on the desk. And this is like the peel apart type. Am I right? I think this was a film pack camera, but the film packs had to have this special capability of uh, combining a negative with a developer uh -huh. uh, and print material. That when you pull it, pull it, pull it out, wait sixty seconds, and then peel the they developed print off the roll. Okay. That was the conventional way of doing it. Right. Anyway, he saw this thing. He decided to take a picture of it to prove that it was there. And he took several pictures while standing on the uh, little porch or stoop of his uh, front door. The pictures show a tree on the right-hand side and a uh, power, power power pole at the right. And his object up in the sky. The first picture shows the object with um, part of the edge obscured by a tree that used to be there. The the tree covered up part of the object in the lower left hand corner of the object. So he took four took four pictures or five pictures and went uh, into the street to take another one, looking up into what he called the power ring or anyway a bright ring of light that was on this thing, and he found himself being lifted upwards. Um, he said that it was suddenly. Uh, he was felt as if he was encased in concrete, and uh, everything looked blue. And he couldn't, um, he was afraid he couldn't breathe, he thought he was going to suffocate. And he starts getting voices in his head, like, be calm and stuff, and he sees pictures of animals and so on uh, in his brain. And all of a sudden, he's dropped, and he lands hard on the road, face down. Uh, he had gone out onto the road to take this picture looking up on, into the object. And he drops down onto the road, rolls over, and looks upwards, and there's nothing there. Huh. Now, Frances had gone shopping about half an hour earlier, and she came back just after this event. And when he got picked himself up, picked himself up off the road, started wondering, you know, how am I going to tell anybody about this? Then he remembered he had these pictures, so he went, started picking up the uh, the pictures. He had pulled out the tabs. But without peeling off the picture, he had just pulled off the tabs for each picture as he took them. He didn't have to wait 60 seconds between pictures in order to just pull the tab out and right. then tear it off uh, and leaving the picture developing. So he was walking along picking these up when Francis, his wife, came back. She saw him picking it up. She noticed that he had a strange odor about him. And then he 
when he peeled the pictures back, he could see that he actually had an image of the object there, so he told Francis about it. And uh, her advice was to shut up and <laughs> don't tell anybody. Right. And Ed decided after several days that, well, he had been picked up by this blue beam. He had actually seen the ground going downwards, so he knew he was being picked up, even though he couldn't move a muscle. And he thought, well, the thing dropped me on the road. Maybe I was too heavy. What if, but what if it had been a child? Maybe it, it would have been tough, strong enough to pick up a child, and then the kid would disappear and nobody would know where it went. So Ed thought it was probably his civic duty to alert the neighborhood, uh, alert the town, as it were, that uh, this thing was around uh, so that uh, if some children, if a child should disappear, they have some uh, some place to look for it, I guess. Right. Anyway, he decided he'd alert the, the town that these things existed, and uh so he went to the newspaper and said that Mr. X had taken these pictures and given them to Ed to take to the paper, because Mr. X wanted to remain anonymous. And the newspaper published the pictures uh, by Mr. X. And uh, with some question, you know, did anybody else see anything? Now, that was published, I think, two weeks after the event, and almost immediately there was a reaction, people contacting the paper saying, yeah, I saw it. And uh, they, over the next uh, couple of weeks, um, a number of people came forward to say they saw it on that same evening of the no of 11th of November. And that was off to the races. And, and then there were other sightings that went that occurred in the days following. Right. Uh, the 13th of November, um, the 19th of November. Now, Ed had another sighting on the 20th of November. Then there was one on the 21st, the 24th. Then in December, December 2nd, Ed had a sighting, but he was not the only one. There was another person who had one. Two other people had it on the 2nd. I'm reading off a uh, comp compilation that I made. Right. Um, on the 5th of December, Ed had another sighting. Then there was on the 10th and the 14th, and Ed had one on the 17th and the, uh, on the 22nd. Uh, the 23rd, somebody else on the... Well, Ed had several in December. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it got pretty, gets pretty complicated. I've written a, a manuscript called uh, The Untold uh, Gulf Breeze, the, uh, the Untold Story, which um, concentrates on all the other sightings that occurred during that period of time, right. which lasted basically from November 11th at 2.30 in the morning until uh, July 10th, I think it was, um, of the next year uh, when... Uh, the county coroner, Fanny McConnell, and his wife really saw the same object hovering over the Pensacola Bay just off the shore from where their house was at the uh, west edge, uh, western end of um, the Gulf Breeze Peninsula. Hmm. And that was the, the classic, what we call the classic Walters craft that they saw? Yes, that's what they claimed. Huh. Now, I know that uh, as time went by with, with Gulf Breeze that the the craft tended to change. I mean, not only did the classic, um, you know, top-shaped thing with the light on the top and the, the big power ring on the bottom, um, he also saw one that had sort of like a veil on the bottom, as he called it. Um, right. But then much later on, he began to see what I always called like multi-lobed craft. Um, uh, I remember at one point you had shown me a, I think it was one of the original photographs that he took of the 
Um, is it the F-15 and the multi-load silver chrome? Uh, so that was, that was 1994. Yeah, much later. So, yeah, much. this was after the initial flap. The initial flap, what I called phase one of the Gulf Reef sightings, started on November 11th and lasted uh, through uh, uh, July 10th, roughly, of, right. uh, of uh, uh, 1988. Um, and during that time, from November 87 to July 88, the total number of reports was 117, of which Ed reported 24, and other people reported 93. Mm. The number of non-Ed witnesses was over 200, because there were many multiple witness sightings. The number of investigated sightings, that is, as opposed to just sightings reported and published in the newspaper, 59. There were 24 Ed investigated and 36 non-Ed investigated sightings. There were days with more than two reports on November 11th, which had nine. February 26th of 88 had three. March 13th of 88 had three. March 14th of 88 had three. March 15th of 88 had four. March 17th had four, March 20th had five, and April 7th had seven. But point is, Ed's, most of Ed's sightings occurred between November 11th and the beginning of March. Other people had a flap of their own, other witnesses, which was made mostly in March and early April. By the middle of April, however, things had just barely died down, and Ed's last sighting was um, May 1 of 88, uh, I think in April he had two sightings, whereas other people, there were a dozen other people that had sightings in April. And what, what other people reported, uh, I think there were about a dozen witnesses during that period of time who, who claimed that they saw exactly the same thing that Ed saw. Okay. And another dozen and a half or two dozen people who saw what could have been a partial view of what Ed photographed. Huh. In many cases, it was so dark, all you could see was this power, this ring of lights up in the sky. Um, there was one young man who reported he saw this thing, and when asked to describe it, he said it was somewhat like the light in his mother's kitchen, or his grandmother's huh. kitchen, I think it was. And it turned out that that light in the grandmother's kitchen was a circular fluorescent light. Okay. And, of course, the... The light coming out of the bottom of this object looked like it was coming from a circle. <laughs> and one of Ed's photos looking upwards into it, you could clearly see this uh, circle, circular effect. Right. Now, did anybody uh, else get photographs like Ed did? Um, I mean, I know that there was, you know, there was there was two anonymous submissions of craft that looked very much well, like. Well, yeah, I should say somebody by the name of who used the term "believer," Bill, in December twenty right. third. On the same, let's see, the night before Ed took a photograph in the early morning, uh, yeah, okay, Believer Bill saw something on December 22nd, he claimed. He saw three objects, three of these things, hovering over uh, a field near the high school, which was, I think it was, and the next morning, December 23rd, early in the morning, Ed took a photograph which showed three UFOs behind his house. Behind his house was the playing field for the high school where Believer Bill claimed he had um, seen these things the night before. No, but nobody ever came forward to, to admit he or she was Believer Bill. Okay. Uh, earlier than that, in early December, there was a, um, somebody who, uh, an anonymous lady, uh, who sent in 
not Polaroid pictures, but uh, 35 millimeter prints, prints of 35 millimeter pictures, um, taken a year or so beforehand, I think it was. Uh, that was the claim, anyway. And did you did you have opportunity to to uh, do any analysis on those uh, from the prints at all? Well, yeah, you didn't need much analysis. You could see easily see. Um, you see that there's an anonymous person on the sixth who claimed it was the June of 1986 took two photos of an Ed type UFO. Uh, and she responded in, or this, she or he, but we think it was a she, responded, uh, to the newspaper stories by sending in these, um, prints made from 35 millimeter, uh, negatives. So, used a mini camera, one of these things that's about the size, uh, a 110 format camera, if you know what I mean. Okay. Um, one of the small, small film types of stuff. You can't even get them now. Um, so the one we call Jane, who claims she saw this thing in 1986, took two pictures that were 35 millimeter. Believer Bill took uh, several pictures of three objects of an, uh, using a 110 format camera. Uh-huh. Uh, there was uh, one more anonymous the person who claimed he saw the same sort of thing and took photos of it, he used the name Astounded in Milton. <laughs> okay. And um, I forget when that was. That was sometime later, uh, springtime, I think it was. Those pictures generally were, was a day. That was those were daytime pictures, and the shape was generally agreeable with Ed's, but it was so such a small image it was really hard to tell. Okay. The bottom line is Ed took most of the pictures by far, although there were a lot of people who claimed that they saw exactly the same thing. few of them had cameras with them. And Ed posed and answered his own question. He posed the question, why am I, why is it so, that I get so many photographs? And uh, he, he, he suggested the answer was because during this first event on November 11th when he was being sucked up in the blue beam, he was getting this humming noise. Besides seeing, having hearing voices and seeing pictures of stuff in his in his brain, he was, heard a, sort of a hum. And two weeks later, he heard this humming noise, and he couldn't figure out what was going on. He thought he was going crazy. Then he, so it occurred to him that, well, maybe that meant that he was hearing something on this object in his vicinity, and he went outside, and, and uh, sure enough, this thing appeared, and he took some more pictures of it. That was his second event. But huh. The point is that he began to realize over the next few events that he'd get this humming noise when the thing was nearby, and that would clue him in that it was time to get his camera ready. Right. And he, exactly. he did not imply that this was a joyous occasion to hear this humming noise. <laughs> right. Uh, the second time he that this happened, he was standing on his porch with his camera, and he gets a voice in his head saying, photos are prohibited. Don't take photos. He said it was it was in Spanish, but he could speak Spanish well enough to understand. <laughs> and at least what he interpreted as being Spanish, he could understand that he wasn't supposed to take photos. To which he says, "The hell with you!" And he took the photos anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's a witness. Now, this all uh, sounds extremely bizarre, you know, and it's easy to pass it off as a complete, well, a combination of 
some sort of mental problems with Ed combined with um, what turned out to be very clever uh, UFO photograph photography. Right. Uh, but having studied this thing and many of the photos myself, and you know, asking in, e in each case what would it take to hoax the photos, what would it take to uh, hoax the sightings, you know, be able to uh, remember all the fine details of each individual sighting for, for days, weeks, months, maybe even years. Um, and uh, I've concluded that uh, Ed was telling the truth. Right. Of course, he passed four lie detector tests. Did you ever hear any investigation by skeptics, Phil Class, or any of those guys that swayed you in any way where you said, hmm, that, that sounds probable? Or, or were, did they only ever offer sort of nonsensical retorts? Well, first of all, they, the, the, the first skeptic claim didn't actually come from Phil Class. It came from um, uh, Willie Smith and Robert Boyd. Uh, who were sort of working on behalf of the Center for UFO Studies, and the Center for UFO Studies picked up on those guys. Uh, their claim was that these pictures were all taken by double exposure. And, in fact, when I began my investigation on the 19th of February, I went to Gulf Breeze on the behalf of the Fund for UFO Research. I went to Gulf Breeze and met Ed. I went there Friday night. I went there thinking that I would easily be able to put this to sleep because it looked like uh, this is another version of Billy Meyer or something. Scads of photographs. Um, well, I didn't really know at that point how many photographs there were. I thought there were only five. <laughs> and as I, when I got the Gold Breeze into the house of the guy who was putting me up there, um, Charlie Flanagan, uh, I then learned that there were maybe a dozen or more photographs that I didn't even know about. But anyway, I demonstrated with Ed's camera how one could do a double exposure. Remember I said you pull a film out and you sit there and let it develop. Well, before you pull a film out, you can take several different exposures on the film. So you could easily click the, click the shutter twice. Then the question is, do you know how to make a double exposure? Uh, and I did one right in front of Ed, and he didn't seem to recognize what I was doing. But anyway, the uh, initial skeptics, the skeptics' initial claim was it was all double exposure. And I subsequently pointed out some photographs that could not have been this simple double exposure technique. Now, what about, um, uh, I know that one thing that, that gets brought up most often to me when I start talking about golf breeze is, uh, as far as skeptics go, uh, was a guy named Jerry Black, who uh, oh, yeah. uh, was really, I, uh, well, I think most people... Um, kind of recognize him as a super volatile, in-your-face guy. Um, but he made a point to say that a double exposure, uh, if Ed had shot, uh, just say, a model, a lighted model craft, um, and then gone outside and shot the open sky with some trees around, that if he accidentally put the ship uh, on the tree, that the tree would actually, through some sort of weirdness with a Polaroid um, emulsion, would the, the darkness of the tree would actually overprint the double-exposed UFO. Now, what is your, your explanation for or retort to that kind of a, a claim? Yeah, well, it's wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty simple no, to me. There was, let's see, I can't think of the guy's name now, an expert photographer brought in on this. William Heiser? Heiser. Heiser, yeah. Uh, who uh, 
um, developed a method whereby you could create, uh, see where they got stuck up was on Ed's first photo, mm-hmm. where the tree blocks part of the image of the UFO. Now, the image of the UFO is brighter than the image of the tree. Uh, it's a standard no-no for double exposures that you can double expose something and get it darker than the background. All that happens with one exposure and then another exposure is that each point on the film adds up the total amount of light that's hit it. That means that if you had a UFO that had absolutely no brightness at all, black, then you go out and you photograph the sky, um, you would see the sky brightness everywhere and nothing else. Um, If you have a UFO image that uh, has some brightness to it, and you go out and photograph the sky, the sky that will appear behind the uh, UFO image and the UFO image brightness itself add together. Right. So that you end up with a total image of the UFO, and in the, in the area of the UFO image, everything is brighter than the sky itself, right. not darker. But in Ed's first photo, where the tree blocks the UFO image, the the uh, the tree image is darker than the UFO, even though the UFO is brighter than the tree. Right. Well, this guy Heiser claimed that he found that if you carefully adjusted your exposure level. Uh, and made use of a latency effect of the film, um, you could do that. But Heiser developed this and required rather accurate metering uh, of, the, of the film exposure, both for the UFO model and for the, uh, the sky image. Uh, he invented this procedure, whatever it was, he did his work in the early 90s. Uh, there's no way that Ed could have done it. Right. Nobody knew about it until Heiser invented it. Right. <laughs> and furthermore, Jeffrey Samuel, who did accurate densitometry or brightness and magnitude of the photo, found out that, well, let me first say that Heiser required that the, the image of the UFO and the image of the background and the tree would have to be certain numbers with respect uh-huh. to zero exposure of the film. And when... Um, when Jeffrey Senior did accurate de- uh, brightness measurements, or what we would call densitometry on the, on the prints, he found that the brightness levels were not consistent with what Heiser recommend- needed to get his method to work. So Heiser's method was not invented until after Ed had taken the pictures, several years later after Ed had taken the pictures. There's no way that Ed was, a, Ed was not an expert photographer like Heiser. And furthermore, the conditions of Ed's photo did not obey the conditions required by Heiser's method. I remember, uh, I don't know if you know Bob Exler or not. Yes. He and I did a lot of, exp- of exposures using a Polaroid camera like Ed's. To, did a lot of testing to try to see if we could make Heiser's, uh, Heiser's uh, theory work. And we were not able to. Hmm. So... The bottom line was that um, Heiser didn't succeed in producing what, what uh, something like Ed's first photo. There were other uh, other photos by Ed that are even more uh, contradictory to the simple double exposure method. Right. Now you did mention Mr. Black. He was a Johnny Come Lately in the show. He started uh, getting interested in it in '91 and '92, and yes, he was very much in your face. He threatened both Ed and me with uh, losses for uh, for fraud. Huh. <laughs> he never carried through, but over a period of several years, I would get these uh, uh, nasty grams 
hour, hour and a half, two hour long tape recordings that he expected me to listen to <laughs> rather than raved over his uh, uh, accusations of one, one fraudulent photo after another. Right. Um, Ed's photo 11 is an interesting test case, which unfortunately I did not realize what that photo contained until several years later. If I had realized in the spring of 1988, I could have put a lot of it, a lot of the argument to rest right off the bat. Ed's photo 11 is one in which he took out the back of the of his house after a, an event that actually involved a creature running into the backyard. Ed chased it to some extent, and then stood there and photographed this object hovering over the you know, his backyard. Really, was the field or the uh, the high school playing field. Right. And in this photo, if you look at photo 11, you see that there's a blue beam coming downwards and disappearing. And this blue beam crosses the boundary between the, glow, the slightly glowing sky above and the trees below. In other words, the horizon line. Right. It's not really a horizon line. It's really the tree line. But the trees below this tree line, below this boundary line, the tree image has absolutely zero exposure. Above the tree line, there is some exposure due to the slightly blue sky uh, of the uh, of the uh, early early morning, and the blue beam crosses this boundary. The, the UFO object itself is above the boundary, and then say so start at the the blue beam starts at the at the UFO and then goes downwards a short distance, crossing an area of where there is the slight exposure of the blue sky, and then uh, crosses the boundary and then continues down below the boundary, to, below where the trees would, the tree images would be, if you could see them. Right, which are completely black. Right. And so it's totally black. So the point is that this blue beam, which is presumably a, uh, well, if this were a hoax, you'd ask, well, how do you make a blue beam? People would suggest putting blue light through a uh, smoke, or maybe taking a blue ribbon and lighting it with a. Uh, so if you were going to do a double, simple, a simple double exposure, you'd have a model somehow lit in a blue beam, a blue ribbon going downwards, and you would photograph this thing in uh, in a dark room, let's say, with a black background, so that all it's, all it shows up is the UFO image, which by itself would be rather difficult to create because this is there's a lot of brightness variations on the uh, UFO image itself. And then there's um, the brightness of this uh, blue beam, supposed blue beam would be a blue ribbon limited, uh, limit, uh, lit by some light, as I point out. You take your first exposure, then you go outside, and somehow you know, even though you can't see what's on the film, you somehow know how to point the camera just right. So the UFO appears above the horizon, the blue beam goes down, crosses the horizon line or the, tr the top of the tree line, and um, then goes down towards the ground. Um, and, and essentially stops at the ground as well. I mean, it's not like well, it... That's what the assumption, but you can't see the ground. You just see that the blue beam ends. R right, it right. It ends somewhere. Uh, this, I think, uh, well, I don't know if you've got any of the books or anything handy. If, any, if anybody has Ed Walter's first book, they can see this. At any rate, the point is that the blue beam, if this were a lit, if this were uh, if the blue beam were created had been created by lighting a blue ribbon and having the image of the blue ribbon cross the boundary up above the boundary you would have at each point within the image of the blue beam 
you would have the brightness of the blue beam plus the brightness of the sky. And down below the, uh, the, the boundary, the tree line, you would have the brightness of the blue beam plus zero because there was no brightness to the uh, images of, uh, of what was below the tree line. So right at the boundary then, if you did a density bright, a brightness measurement, a brightness uh, scan along the blue beam measuring the brightness as a function of position, and you start up a UFO, you get some brightness level due, as, due, as I said, due to the combination of the, the, the uh, if this is a simple double exposure, the combination of the blue ribbon brightness uh, plus the background sky brightness. Right. And down below the boundary, you get only the blue beam brightness itself, the, the, the ribbon brightness. Point being, there would be a drop in brightness right at the boundary. Well, unfor uh, there, there isn't any. Right. Jeff Sanio sent me a uh, color-contoured copy of that print, of that picture, and I had not realized this before. It was 1991, I think, when he sent me a, when he sent me a copy of this that he had uh, used in some of his equipment to do a color contour of it. And to my great amazement, the blue beam image was uniform in brightness all the way right straight across the boundary. And it took me four microseconds to realize what that meant. And I wish I had known that in 1988 when the skeptics were screaming about double exposures because what I observed on this blue beam image could not have been the result of a double exposure. Right, right. You could do it as a double exposure, but it would have to be what's known as a masked double exposure where you right. create a mask that blocks out the background light. Right. And then you would have to carefully register the location of the well, the latent image that you shot in the dark room has to be carefully registered with respect to this mask that blocks out the skylight when you take the picture outdoors. Virtually yeah. impossible to do with edge camera. Yeah, well, you, you, like, and, and to match it perfectly would be impossible, I would think, uh, with something like that. Um, uh, well, thanks for addressing that. The, the other one that comes up most in conversation is the road shot. Right. Which, uh, uh, in most conversations I get into, that's the one people point and say, say, you know, the, the, the bottom light is, is reflecting on the road and, uh, and it's not accurate to the, the contour of the light that we see above it. And I want you to tell me if I'm right or wrong because I've looked a lot at that shot and, and I would say probably the better part of 15 years ago, uh, uh, Bob had given me one of the large posters of that shot, mm -hmm. and I look at that thing a lot. I looked at it a lot over the years, and I always saw, um, and I'm curious what you think, uh, I always saw that, that bottom, what people call a reflection, it, it, looks, like a, it looks like a pile of... Yep. Like a substance a pile that's of light. <laughs> yeah, like like a plasma type thing, or like you might see underneath of like a welding arc, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that that looks very much like it's dissipating at the edges, like it's melting, like a dry ice effect type thing. Mm -hmm. Is is that what you're seeing there, as opposed to being? Yeah, I don't know, but I but you know, one argument against that was there's there doesn't seem to light up anything else. Jeff Sanio doing careful densitometry or brightness analysis of the road found that there was, in fact, some brightening of the road near the object, or, or the, the road brightness diminishes as you go farther away from it. 
Um, so that makes sense. But the big argument, which was raised by Heiser and the Salisbury's and everybody uh, picked up by Black, is that, uh, gee, if there's a bright light out in front of this truck, the truck has a curved hood, mm. the light should be reflected in the hood. Okay. And um, uh, you can see that, if, you know, if you look at the hood of your car, when there's oncoming cars at nighttime, they're, they're light beams. You can see them reflected in the hood of the car. The hood of the, the hood of the truck slopes gently downwards from where it's just below the windshield towards the front. And when it gets to the very front of the uh, engine, it has a sharp curb curvature that goes down to make a vertical a vertical uh, uh, surface uh, at the very end of the hood. If you know, if you know what I mean. Sure. If you started if you started at the uh, bottom of the windshield and you move to the right, let's say. Uh, if the if the uh, if the rear of the uh, truck is at your left and the front of your truck is at the right, you start at the uh, windshield and you go in a, in a nearly straight line at a slow downward slant until you get to a point near the front of the hood where all of a sudden you get a, a curvature that occurs. Right. If there's a light in front of the truck, you can see it directly by looking through the windshield. But also okay. there should be some point on the curvature of this uh, hood that aligns with the uh, um, with this light that's in front of the truck so that you see the light reflected in the hood at the same time that you see it directly. Right. That's what should happen. Well, this was first brought up in the summer of 1988 um, before the infamous uh, UFO, um, UFO cover-up live. Oh, okay. The people who were doing the UFO cover-up live, one guy, one of the guys said, you know, this has got to be a hoax because um, you're not getting a reflection of a light in the hood. So I began an investigation to find out, well, why don't you get a reflection in the hood? And I actually had Ed, uh, Ed and Francis do some experiments for me in which they uh, put a flashlight, took a flashlight uh, 100 or 200 feet in front of a truck, and uh, put a flashlight on the ground and, and, and another flashlight at, at several different heights. And to my great surprise, if I had the flashlight um, too high up, I didn't get a reflection. But I did get a reflection when, I, when the flashlight was uh, three or four feet. I forget exactly what it was. And that's caused me to... And there was that. Plus, I noticed something strange about the brightness of the hood in the photo itself, at the bottom of the photo, uh, you, everybody looks at the UFO uh, image and the, and the pile of light that's underneath it. But if you look downwards from that, you find a pale blue line that sort of slants uh, going from left to right. And then you find uh, 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 another pale blue line that's, that's even farther down. Huh. You should only have one pale blue line. The pale blue line is the reflection of the sky in the hood, and that oh. should occur in the flat section of the hood somewhere. Um, below that reflection uh, of the sky should be the reflection of the trees, and below the reflection of the tree line, for example, should be the, the reflection of the bright light, the top light of the UFO, and then even the reflection of the brighter bottom light. Right. Well, you shouldn't get two pale blue lines, but you do. As I said, you get, if you look at the picture, you have to know, you have to know what to look for, and then you can see what I'm talking about.
the, the lowest blue line, pale blue line, is the correct one, the one you would expect to get a reflection off the flat part of the hood close to the windshield, a reflection of the sky. Then you would, then in the upper portion of that reflection is, corresponds to the uh, tree line itself. If you continue to look upwards in the picture, which corresponds to looking farther along the uh, hood, getting closer to the front, you should just see dark as it reflects the tree line, except for where the uh, UFO would be some bright. Instead, what you do is you see the blue again. Huh. And that shouldn't be there. Well, that's not taken into account by Salisbury and Heiser and everybody. They just ignored it. I didn't ignore it. I asked Ed if his truck had ever been in an accident. Uh -huh. I didn't try to put anything in there. Whenever I asked Ed questions, I tried to ask him in such a way as I didn't hint at any answer. <laughs> right. Well, I had to ask this one if his truck had ever been in any accident um, uh, because um, I needed to know if something had happened to the hood. And he told me that, yes, a year or so beforehand, he had had his truck parked in a uh, construction site, and he had parked just in back of a backhoe. Huh. You know what that is. Sure. And he says the guy driving the backhoe didn't know, realize that Ed had parked there, backed up, and bumped into Ed's, uh, the front end of Ed's truck, bending right. the hood. Uh. Well, they didn't go to the trouble of putting a new hood on. He just straightened out the hood enough so it would latch again. Right. But he left enough of a crease, apparently, in that hood to create... Uh, well, instead of sloping continuously downwards, there was a portion of the hood that sloped up, just at the uh, just where it began going the sharp curvature down. It actually went upwards a little bit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, which alleviates the reflection they're looking for. So, which, which caused another reflection of a sky is what it amounted to. Right. Right. And okay. So, and so, what happened is there was no place in the hood that aligned reflectively to, to allow the, uh, the, UFO, the brightness of the UFO image of the UFO out there to, uh, to reflect off the hood like you would expect. Right. Uh, so anyway, you never know what you're going to get into when it comes to um, UFO investigations. We had to take into account something else, which was the tilt of the truck. We uh, found once I realized that encoded into the UFO picture itself was the answer. Namely, that the sky occurs twice. It shouldn't, but it does. Right. Um, in trying to do a reconstruction of the whole thing, we had to um, um, put blocks on the truck, and uh, uh, I don't know. It got pretty damn complicated. But but the bottom line is, the, the picture itself tells you the answer. What you under, understand what the uh, brightness of the, the pale blue brightness of lines mean. Right, right. So uh, the bottom line is um, the arguments raised by the skeptics are no good. Well, what, what about the argument that, that Ed had, in fact, um, uh, made double exposure? I think it was ghost photos or something for kids' birthday parties, something along those lines, prior to all the skeptics. Yeah, that was a claim by Robert Boyd, and he wrote a, pa a paper called Failure at Science. And uh, Bill and um, um, Willie Smith. Okay. Yeah, Willie Smith emphasized this um, ghost photo. 
the ghost photos of stuff was brought out in the nineteen eight in the spring of nineteen eighty eight, coincident with the argument that this everything was double exposures. The ghost photos supposedly show a, a girl with a ghost image at her right side. And I've seen the ghost. It took a while, quite a while before uh, we got to actually see the ghost photo. It was a photo that Ed had given to this girl a year or so before at one of the parties at his house. And all sorts of arguments were made up to, well, I guess, denigrate Ed in any case. The claim was made that they were having seances and, and um, trying to scare the uh, the kids and so on. Ed said that what he did was he would defocus the camera. Uh, the ghost image was not supposed to appear beside the person. The ghost image was supposed to be the person, her or himself, as a defocused image. When you defocus the image of the, the camera, uh, that is, it should be focused up close when you're, let's say, five or six feet away from a person. Mm -hmm. um, Ed would focus it at, as close as he could get it, or at infinity. And in either case, make the image of the person look a little strange by not being in focus. This was supposed to be the, quote, ghost, unquote. The one picture turned up with some sort of a, um, um, arrangement of anomalous, uh, of uh, amorphous blobs at the right-hand side of this person, of this girl. Uh, it's on the left-hand side as, in the, as you look at the picture. And... Um, by cleverly drawing lines from one amorphous blob to another, they made a picture that looked like a demon, sort of a face. <laughs> if you looked at the picture and nobody told you what you were supposed to see, you wouldn't even notice it, probably. Right. But by, it's like a Rorschach test for the observer. Like Richard Hoagland's Mars. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, this... Um, it was claimed that this ghost image was made by double exposure. Was, the, the following claim was made. But Ed uh, took a, had a person in a dark room, and he took a picture of the person's face wearing a mask, a devil mask, uh, and he, took, he clicked the shutter, but he didn't pull out the film. Then he goes outside, out into another room where there's a girl who's going to have this ghost appear, and he takes a photograph of her, in such a way that she doesn't cover up the ghost image. He takes a picture of her, then he pulls out the tab and lets the film develop, and you get the, comp the standard um, two-exposure, double-exposure uh, photograph of the girl with this image of a ghost beside her. Well, now, if that were done, as, as prescribed by the, by the skeptics, you would actually get a picture of the face or the mask. It would be a defi definitive picture of the mask uh, of the person supposedly who is supposedly the ghost. You would not get just a series of amorphous blobs that you then have to draw lines around to be able to show what should be the eyes and the nose and the mouth and so on. Oh. It, uh, and this can be proven, uh, which I did, <clears throat> that if you do this double exposure, you know, with a, a mask in a room, you, you get a definitive image on the camera, not just a bunch of blobby images. Well, this thing was blown hugely out of proportion. As I said, well, I was blown hugely out of proportion in order to claim that Ed knew how to do double exposures, and therefore all his UFO photos were double exposures. Remember, I said I wish I had known about photo 11 with the blue beam and what that implied in the spring of 1988 when this big explosion of double exposure claims took place.
because the blue beam photo itself proved it was not a double exposure. Mm-hmm. There were other photos that we found out later on that Ed took, uh, which also contradicted the double exposure. But, you know, I never thought that Ed knew anything about double exposure because I did a double exposure right in front of his eyes, and he gave no hint at all recognizing what had happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what convinced me about the reality of Ed's stuff was not this argument about double exposure or whatever. It was the uh, 3D, the stereo photos. Ed's still the only person, so far as I know, the only person ever to take stereo photographs of a UFO. And uh, his first stereo pictures were with a so-called Nimzo camera, which had four lenses on it. We did not tell Ed that the four-lens camera would provide a stereo picture. He was told that it would provide four different photos that could be sent to different photo analysts so you could get four times the, uh, the analysis uh, that you would get compared to just a single photograph. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he did not tell him that the fact that there was two and a half inches between the outer photos meant that you could resolve a distance like 10 or 15 or 20 feet. Right. In other words, if he had been using a small model of 10 feet, which was the standard canonical distance proposed by the skeptics, because that's the distance that typically fits inside a room, you know, go into the bathroom, take your double, your, your first exposure, uh, then go outside and uh, take another exposure, whatever. Um, so this Nimzol camera, yeah, by having two and a half inch spacing between the outer lens, could distinguish between something that was, let's say, 10 feet away and something that was a lot farther. Right. Well, he was given the Nimslow camera in early February, and he stopped, and he didn't have any sightings. He didn't have any sightings. It wasn't until the latter part of February that he actually got a Nimslow camera picture, I think the 28th of February. Um, in the meantime, he'd made a joke. He said at first, because of all the pictures he was taking, he was considered to be guilty by photography. <laughs> then, after they came to the Nimslow camera, and he seemed to have a dry spell. He said, well, now I'm guilty by non-photography. <laughs> right. All too typical. Anyway, for stuff. Yeah. yeah, anyway, he um, took the, the uh, pictures with his Nimzol camera, 10 photographs. He and Francis went to a place called Shoreline Park, and um, uh, they were actually looking for an object to show up. And he saw this strange arrangement of lights appear and travel at some considerable speed past the park, uh, passing behind a tree. Uh, and he took ten photos of it, including pictures while well, it was behind the tree. And you can actually see in this series of ten photos, you can see a, an odd structure of lights, which uh, changes uh, at the time that this thing was behind the tree. Some of the lights seem to be missing. At any rate... The maximum extension from the left-hand light to the right-hand light, turn, uh, I, when I finally got the uh, Nimzel camera photos calibrated, turned out that this thing was about uh, two and a half feet long and 40 feet away. Uh, it could have been as well, it could have been as close as 40 feet and as far as 70 feet, um, and between two and a half and four feet long. Uh, Ed said it went beyond on the far side of some pine trees, 
and we uh, asked him where he was standing and measured the distance of the pine trees and calculated that, in fact, from where his camera was to the, the other side of the pine trees was about 40 feet. Huh. Well, of course, because it was a small object, it could have been that Ed made a, didn't have to do a double exposure now, he could have made a full-size model at two and a half feet, set it 40 feet away, and photographed it. Right. This would have been a model that does not look at all like the circular Type 1 Ed craft. This is a, that's really hard to describe. Is this the rectangular sequence of lights? Is that sort of what it is? Well, it's at the back end of it, there's a vertical light, and then there's a, some horizontal-like lights leading towards the front end. Okay. Uh, it was a unique structure of lights. Well, was it on the that happened in February, late February of 1988. He got that picture. Up to that point, he had had a number of photographs of, a, of this circular type with, a, with a, what he called a power ring at the bottom. Right. So, so this Nimslow type was different from the previous types. And then on May 1 of 1988, it was Ed's last uh, UFO event for over a year, I guess. Okay. But it was quite an event. He called me up in the morning of, uh, I think it was a Sunday morning. I have to look back and see. I don't remember exactly. But I got a phone call from the late morning, and it was a very distraught Ed. Uh, uh, I finally got him to explain what was going on, and he described this just story that's told in the last chapter. Uh, well, not the last chapter, the next to the last chapter of his book, The Gulf Breeze Sightings, the first book. He had been on this uh, beach at the Shoreline Park. He had been out actually trying to take a picture with this big stereo camera. He had been, I forgot to mention, because he um, had been successful taking pictures with this Nimslow camera, I suggested, oh, well, maybe you could do better. And I did tell him then about the, uh, the stereo effect and how it would allow us to measure the distance to the object. Now, if this guy were a hoaxer, and, he t and I told him that using a stereo camera could uh, essentially reveal his hoax by showing he was taking a nearby model photograph, you would think he would be reluctant to take any more stereo photos. <laughs> right. Sure. Well, so I explained this to him, and I said, you know, Ed, if you're really interested in getting the distance, you could do better, better by making a stereo camera yourself out of two cameras that are a foot apart. And by this time, he had changed cameras. He was no longer using his old Polaroid that you pull a paper out. Okay. Now he was using a Model 600, which is a modern, which then was a modern uh, Polaroid camera. With a Model 600, uh, you put a film pack in. Each film pack has a battery built into it. And there's a motor in the camera. When you press the button, the shutter takes the picture, and immediately the film is ejected. You don't have time for a double exposure. Right. Now, actually, by calling the Polaroid company, we found that it is possible to do a double exposure with this type of camera, but you have to know how to stop the film ejection. Actually, <laughs> uh. and I had to call Polaroid to find out how this was done. We're supposed to assume that Ed, being a clever hoaxer, learned it all, all by himself. Uh, at any rate, uh, he got a Model 600 camera in early, uh, in the sometime of February, I think it was, 
And the very next day, took a photograph uh, with the camera, which shows this UFO moving upwards uh, between a couple of trees. So anyway, I knew that he had one Polaroid camera, and I knew that the editor of the newspaper, Dwayne Cook, who had published Ed's stories and so on, had a, had one also. So I suggested he borrow Dwayne's camera and put them on a board a foot apart to make a stereo camera, all he would have to do would be to press the left and right buttons, the cameras on the, the left and right camera buttons at the same time when pointing this object, uh, pointing this camera at a UFO. The one-foot baseline would allow us to do a triangulation or, or really a, a stereo calculation uh, out to maybe 100 feet. Right. And uh, so I proposed this to him, um, in late February, and I thought, well, I don't know, he might do it sometime, who knows. A week or so later, to my great surprise, he says, oh, I did build that camera, and I built it with a two-foot baseline. He didn't use a <laughs> baseline. He used two feet between the cameras. <clears throat> and I thought, wow, that's great. Now we could probably get <clears throat> resolve something up to several hundred feet away. Huh. Uh, and, uh, and then he proceeded to take stereo pictures. Uh, the first one that he took was... Um, at Shoreline Park, when other people were around, that's a complicated story, but it's told in the the, uh, the UFO in the Gulf Breeze sightings. Uh, he took another another uh, stereo photo uh, at his house one evening in March. The last one, though, was the one that blew my mind. When you take a picture with a stereo camera, uh, you should understand that. The size of the image that you get on the film plane is determined by the focal length of the lens. Okay. If you know the distance out to the object and the size of the object, the lateral size, the size measured perpendicular to the line of sight, if you know that size uh, you, and you divide by the distance, you come up with a ratio number. That same ratio, size over distance, applies inside the camera where the distance is replaced by the focal length F. Oh. So if you have uh, uh, size divided by distance and multiplied by the focal length, that gives you the size of the image inside the camera. This is what appears on the film. If Polaroid camera had a hundred, about a 100 millimeter focal length, the Nimslo camera had about a 30 millimeter focal length. He had already gotten a, a UFO image size of about two and a half feet uh, using the Nimslow camera on his, uh, uh, when he used the Nimslow camera, he got this UFO image size that indicated uh, when you take the 30 millimeter focal length, and essentially we're using that relation backwards, take the image size, divide by the focal length, multiply by the distance, and you get the size of the object. Okay. How do you know the distance? If you have a stereo camera, you can find the distance. So on May 1, a very bizarre event happened, but from the photographic point of view, which is what impressed me, more, his story impressed me, but more than that was a photographic thing. He took a stereo pair of photos. That is, you get with this two-camera system, you got two pictures. Okay. Uh, and one was from the left-hand side, one was from the right-hand side. These pictures were taken looking out over the Santa Rosa Sound, which is the body of water 
south of Gulf Breeze, between Gulf Breeze Peninsula and the Pensacola, the Pensacola Beach Peninsula. As fate would have it, he had been on the beach hoping, thinking this thing would show up. He suddenly saw it out over the water. And he pointed this double camera, if you want to call it that, or the, what I call the SRS, the self-referencing stereo camera. He pointed his stereo camera towards this object out over the water and pushed the, uh, he had gone so he could, and trained himself so he could push the buttons on these two cameras at the same time. As fate would have it, unfortunately, he also got in the picture the lights on the so-called Bob Sykes Bridge, the street uh -huh. lights. And those are about 7,000 feet away. They provide a calibration for this stereo effect. He got two UFO images. One was the standard Ed-type Ed one with a power ring at the bottom and a little top light. Uh -huh. And he got another one, which was clearly the Mimslow type. In each case, you had the image size, and you had the focal length of the camera. And because of the stereo effect, you had the distance. So when you calculated the size, let's say the vertical dimension of the uh, uh, Ed one, Ed Type 1 Ed camera came out, I don't know, 15 feet or something. I forget the exact numbers now. It's been a long time. But what blew my mind was here is the image of the uh, Nimslow type, and it calculates to be two and a half feet. The, huh. Ed, type, the Ed Type 1 was uh, 400, and was, the parallax showed it was 450 feet away, I think, 470 feet away, and gave a size, and this image gave a the image size corresponded to an actual physical size comparable to what we had estimated before. And with the uh, Ninslow pick type of object, it was 135 feet away. Now, this is, mind you, this is looking out over a body of water. Um, 135 feet away, and it calculated to be two and a half feet long, which is what he had gotten with a Nimslow camera using a different focal length. And I'm saying to myself, Ed doesn't know a damn thing about photo photography other than pushing the picture, pushing the button, as far as I can tell. I have to sit here and spend hours to figure out how to do, how to fake stereo photographs. I figured oh. out how to do it with his camera, but it was, you know, it was after a lot of, a lot of thinking. And here, Ed presumably has figured it out himself. And what impressed me was he had to know how big, if this was, a, if the Nimslow object was a model somehow supported out over the water, uh, 135 feet away, he had to know how big to make that model to make it come out the right size on the film plane to learn right. it looked like two and a half feet. Uh, well, actually, what I should say is if it were a small model close up, He'd have to know, because he couldn't. Obviously, he could not support a big model out at 135 feet off the shore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He'd have to have a small model close to the shore, and he'd have to know how to calculate the size of that small model using the the focal length of the Polaroid cameras to make an image that was the right size to agree with the photo of the uh, the, the, the Nimslow photo, which showed it be about two and a half feet. Well, huh. it gets a little complicated, but the bottom line is I figured this is beyond Ed's capability is real. Yeah. Now, I should say that I started my investigation in February of 1988, essentially convinced that it was all a big hoax. And um, 
spent a lot of time analyzing all the photos and the stories. And, of course, this was a unique situation in that the sightings were occurring at the same time that the UFO investigation was going on. As you're well aware, most UFO investigations take place days, weeks, months, even years after the sighting. Huh. But this was a situation where we were impacting on the sightings themselves. As they were happening. The creation of this stereo camera. If the sightings had stopped, let's say in March, uh, there never would have been a stereo photo on May 1. But the sightings continued in spite of the investigations. And, uh, well, like I said, I concluded that this was, this was too much for anybody like Ed to pull off. Uh, even I would have had trouble doing it. <laughs> right, yeah. Bruce, did anyone else see the Nimslow uh, craft or photograph it? The Nimslow craft? No, I don't think so. I'm not aware of any other sighting uh, of that type. While you were there, did you see um, Ed Walters' type craft? Did you see anything personally? I did not uh, during the. I did not see anything during the uh, first phase of sightings. What I call a first phase of Gulf Breeze sightings that were the sighting types that we've been describing between November '87 and um, July of '88. Uh, now, I, as you're probably aware, that was not the end of the sightings. The sighting rate was huge from November '87 through. Uh, July of 88, and then the sighting rate dropped. It was still higher than normal, the normal area, I guess you might say. But the sighting rate dropped um, in what I call a second phase of sightings. Uh, the sighting rate dropped and um, stayed low until, uh, oh, for about a year. Then the third phase began in November of 1990 when the so-called Red Bubba sightings began. I presume you're familiar with those. Yes. Um, And the Red Bubba sightings, that was just a a terminology that was used to distinguish these particular sightings. The Red Bubba sightings lasted from November uh, 1990 until July of 1992, during which the sighting rate was so continuous that um, there were people who went out basically every night, a group of ranging anywhere from four to six people all the way up to 100, seeing these things going through the sky, photographing. They got so they had bought special cameras. We did experiments that involved diffraction grading, photographs, infrared photographs. Um, and... Uh, one of the, they, they first of all, from November 1990 through um, the summer of 1991, were seeing mostly single lights going through the sky. They would be red and suddenly burst into a white flashing and so on. This was, the skeptics claimed that this was all balloon flare type of stuff, similar to what happened in New Jersey just uh, last January. Right. Yeah, the, uh, where they confessed on April 1st. And we wonder who was the April Fool. Was it the guys who confessed <laughs> and got, got, almost ended up in the slammer? Right. Because uh, launching uh, flares on balloons is not a clever thing to do. Um, we are supposed to believe that in Gulf Breeze that happened 174 times between November 1990 to July 1992. 170-some events 
most of which were this red light thing moving through the sky. Some of these sightings, a few of them, may well have been some sort of a balloon flare thing. But in other cases, uh, we got triangulations showing that the object was moving 10, 15, 20, 30, up to 50 miles an hour, uh, so often a crosswind or a counter to the wind direction. So anyway, uh, in September of 1991, instead of single lights, they began seeing rings of light, a ring of eight of some number of lights forming a ring. And so I thought, I definitely got to go there and see what the hell's going on. And I went there, I arrived on September 15th, 1991, was told that I was one night too late. The previous night they had seen something. I... Um, Went there on the on the sixteenth of, of September, and uh, sure enough, while I was there, uh, a ring of lights appeared in the sky. I had binoculars hanging around my neck, so I picked up the binoculars, and uh, well, somebody yelled, "There it is!" without saying where, <laughs> in the sky somewhere. That's nice. I, but I, I had been looking in a direction. Um, we were in a part. We were in a parking lot at the south end of the Pensacola Bay Bridge, uh, looking eastward over, over Gulf Breeze. And I just looked up, and sure enough, here was this dot of light that was up in the sky. So I pulled up the binoculars, and this dot resolved itself into eight tiny lights, like a chandelier turning on up in the sky. Hmm. And then it started to move. Either it was coming overhead or going upwards, it was hard to say. Um, and I didn't... Uh, after it was all over, I didn't uh, immediately call the guys in White Coast to come uh, with butterfly nets and take me away, ho ho, because there were 30 other people there. It was film, it was photographed, videotaped, and even crudely triangulated. So uh, we had uh, quite a sighting, and uh, I had a big ear microphone. That is a a parabolic dish microphone that I pointed towards this object to see if I could hear any noise. I did that because I had concluded that uh, from previous sightings that if these these things were moving through the air, um, perhaps there was some sound associated if it was a hoax that was on some sort of thing like an airplane or a motorized blimp carrying a flare. Uh, carrying five, eight, eight lights is a little bit more different than carrying a flare. You've got to have some sort of a structure to hold these lights. But in any case, I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear any engine, engine noise. I didn't hear any noise at all coming from the direction of the object. Um, as I said, it was photographed and uh, videotaped. Uh, in retrospect, I concluded that it could be 10, 15, 20 feet in diameter. Wow. Uh, was it an extraterrestrial craft? I don't know, but I don't know what the hell it was. If it was a hoax, it was pretty damn expensive, sophisticated hoax, and this was just one of a number of times when they saw rings of light. And earlier a week, or two weeks before I got there, they, when they first saw rings of light, uh, a couple of the people who were um, part of what I call the Gulf Breeze Research Team, people who went out virtually every night of the whole year, uh, were watching this thing and videotaping it. And while uh, well, one guy, Bruce Morrison, was um, uh, videotaping, his wife, Ann Morrison, was standing next to him looking at it through binoculars, and you can hear her say on the tape, uh, let's see if it's blocking the stars as it goes by. It was traveling along through the sky at a speed, and it seemed to be a ring of lights that was flipping over. 
And you hear her say, yep, it's blocking the stars as it goes along. Huh. So that implies that there was some opaque body associated with the lights. Interesting. The whole thing, the whole thing is very bizarre, and it's uh, partially covered in the uh, manuscript I wrote, the, the um, Gulf Breeze, the uh, uh, untold story, uh, which I can show you a copy of if you want. Huh? Is that is that out already, or or is that coming out? As a manu- uh, tried to make it into a manuscript ten or more years ago. Decided that um, I think I floated it around a little bit and was basically told that the world had been saturated with Gulf Breeze, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I gave up and went on to write the UFO FBI connection and then another book called Abduction in My Life. Uh, <clears throat> neither of which mentioned Gulf Breeze. Okay. Uh, now that's that's the one where where you pretend that you're not an alien abductee by by doing a work of fiction. Is that correct? <laughs> that's right. Except you know, I'm, not, I'm not an alien abductee to begin with. I, I hope. <laughs> uh, well, 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 wait. Let me just go back one sec. Were you yeah. working uh, for the the Navy at the time of Gulf Breeze? Working for the Navy, yes. Were they interested in this? Did you bring this nah. to their attention? I was working for the Navy up until last April when I retired after 36 years. Mm-hmm. Now, my first <clears throat> blatant UFO investigation while I was working for the Navy was the New Zealand case. Um, when that came down the pike in December 1988, uh, I ended up being the person who was fortunate enough to be asked to investigate and that involved for me actually taking time off from work. I had to quit. I, I had to take time without pay, basically. Uh, and then I went to New Zealand and Australia and so on. And after that happened, I was uh, advised by my higher ups that they didn't care what I did with my spare time. Just don't bring us into it. Huh. So um, I had tried to keep a low profile, more or less. But uh, my low profile was broken when I was on Good Morning America <laughs> on the 26th of, uh, I think it was, or something like that, uh, March 1979, when the results of my investigation were presented at a press conference in New York City. And I was on Good Morning America that morning, and the editor of the laboratory newspaper happened to see me on and thought, wow, what a great story. <laughs> So she contacted me when I, while I was at work a few, a few days later and said, can we do a story on your stuff? And I immediately cringed. <laughs> um, and I had to decide, you know, do I say yes or no? But then I realized that if you don't sort of play along with the press, they can write any damn thing they want. Right. So yeah. I said, okay. And uh, they took a picture of me sitting at my desk at work holding a photograph of one frame of the movie film and they did a uh, story about the, the sightings themselves in Gulf Breeze and my investigation of it I ended up being the centerfold for the newspaper hmm. <laughs> I thought oh this is going to blow my cover completely Right. Uh, the net result was nothing almost the editor of the newspaper said she got the only feedback she got from the captain was that it was a very nice spread <laughs> <laughs> Wow. And one guy contacted me with a sighting. 
Uh, huh. It was quite an interesting sighting, which he, had, in fact, had reported to J. Allen Hynek about 10 years before. That, that one guy contacting me about a sighting, that was the only, that was the only personal reaction that I got from it. Hmm. Wow. Um, well, Bruce, I know that, uh, well, I, you, you probably don't know, but on this show, I think that what we've probably focused on the most is the thing that about the UFO enigma that you hear the the least about, which is uh, the very, very bizarre. And you mentioned that Gulf Breeze was very bizarre. Um, uh, it's kind of been our opinion for a number of years now that that a lot of things get unmentioned in public UFO cases because there are certain instances that happen that are incredibly bizarre. Um is there anything about Gulf Breeze that you just, you know, you you may have thought about putting into a book and then said, I can't put this in there because nobody's going to believe this. Are there <laughs> those type of things in there? I mean, uh, I, I mean, well, it, it, it's it's hard enough for some people to accept, um, you know, Walter's story for for what it is, and and uh, no matter how much analysis goes into and how much it's qualified. Um, but are there those things that are just like, you know, this is just so out there, I can't possibly say this in a book? About the Gulf Breeze sighting situation, certainly you can read in Ed's books, his book called Abductions in Gulf Breeze, in particular. Huh? What happened, what, he, what came out under hypnosis, which is pretty bizarre. Um, being on board some sort of craft, one presumes that he essentially acted like a teacher for for small creatures. Uh-huh. Uh, um, but he told me about parano- what it would be things that we might consider to be paranormal. Yeah. But also happened, which did not make it into his book. Uh-huh. Or creature events that, that, ha- that did not make it into his book. Like uh, the night that his family was running around scared because... They'd see an arm of something like reach downwards from above the roof <laughs> and come down towards the window. I don't remember all the details in that because that's now 20-some years since he's told me. Right. Um, but I can recall, as I said, some uh, pretty bizarre stuff that happened. Ed, his first, he, he, he was the main driver of what I call the first phase of the Gulf Creek sightings. <clears throat> and the second phase when things diminished downwards you played in hardly any role and the third phase were the Gulf the Bubba sightings he was there for maybe a third of them a uh, third to a half I, I don't know exactly I, I've got that statistic somewhere okay. um, the Bubba sightings ended in uh, July of 1988 uh, 1992 I mean uh, his first book came out in 1990 his abductions and Gulf book came out I think in 92 um and then, from '92 onwards, he had sporadic events. It seemed November was an anniversary type of thing. Okay. Uh, but he didn't have them every every November. But he would more, more than not. He had them in November, all the way up through '97, which is the last one that I know about. The last one he told me about, and I'm sure that things have happened since then. It's almost like. They were coming back to revisit him. His last UFO photo sightings that he told me about, the UFO object was, let's say, within 50 feet of him. Uh. In daytime, 
and not large, a couple of feet in diameter maybe. And what did that look like? Round, round object. Didn't look like the power ring thing that he had before. Right, just uh, kind of a spherical. It was daytime sighting, so if there was a glow, you might not notice it. Okay. Uh, and in these sightings, the last two that I know more of, he called up Bland Pugh, one of the investigators, and he called up me. I, I think he was talking to me in one sighting while it was happening. <laughs> it's been, again, it's been a long time. No, that, that stuff just has not been published. Right. Uh, Ed was so raked over the coals. Uh, by the middle 1990s, by the middle 90s, he was uh, um, fed up with the whole thing. Right. He was very reluctant to tell me about the last sightings. Uh, in the book, UFOs Are Real, Here's the Proof, which was published, I guess, in 96 or 7. Uh-huh. The last sighting that he wanted to be put in the book would have ended up on the back cover, and they didn't do it. Uh, it was one of these very close things <clears throat> that happened. The last sighting that he told me about, he said he didn't want me to tell anybody. Huh. After that, which I think was a November 1997 sighting, after that, he never told me anything about it again. Well, he sort of lost contact, more or less, because all the big hullabaloo about the original Gulf Breeze sighting was long over by that time. Right. And I hadn't actually seen him for a number of years until back last February when... They took me down to uh, uh, film the Gulf Breeze section of, of the UFO Hunter show. And uh, I told Ed uh, that I was coming, and we had dinner. And I met him and his, his wife, Marsha. His wife during the, the 1987-88 sightings was, uh, was Francis. He and Francis got a divorce in 92 or 93, I think. Okay. Um. And this is interesting, by the way. One of the uh, uh, things you would expect was that if, if Francis was P.O.'d at Ed, um, she would have, and knew that Ed's sightings were all hoaxes, <clears throat> he would have, she would have blown the lid off. Yeah, exactly. But in fact, she has backed him up continuously on, in terms of the UFO stuff. Huh. Anyway, uh, he then married uh, uh, a lady, Marsha Athey, who was, he had met during these Bubba sightings. Uh, events and he still married her so anyway I met him for the first time in years uh, back in February and he still he wants nothing no part of it he said that um, now he moves from one place to another he's a, a home builder right and that's not his main business now though his main business has to do with information technology, I think. Uh, I'm not absolutely sure what he's doing. I know that one time he took over a contract to run telephones. Well, when in 1993, a hurricane, I forget the name of it, wiped out uh, a bunch of stuff along the Pensacola Beach, including wiping out all the, uh, the, um, the phones that were along the beach. Right. Uh, the call went out for somebody who wanted, would somebody come and please pay to have this stuff put back in. Ed said, okay, uh, you give me the contract to uh, franchise for, for all the pay phones, and I'll put them in. Right. And that got him into the information technology business. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's the other thing that I think is so interesting about Ed is, like, unlike a lot of these uh, people involved in these big UFO cases, is Ed 
as far as I know, and you correct me if I'm wrong, he always had money. He wasn't a poor man by any stretch. Right, right. When he, I mean, when he, when he and um, Francis split, you know, it became public knowledge that they had split uh, something like two million bucks. I forget exactly. Yeah, yeah. He had bought his and hers Thunderbirds. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> they each got got to keep one. I guess I don't know. Um, right. So yeah, he was not. Unlike, let's say, Billy Meyer, right? Uh, somebody who had to rely on UFOs to support him. No. As a matter no. of fact, he made it clear to me that they were detrimental to his business. That he thought he was—he was sure that he had lost work in the eighty-eight, eighty-seven, eighty-eight time frame as a result of the publicity, especially in later on when it became totally known that he was the person who was seeing this when his book, book was published in nineteen ninety. Uh, his book was published in March, his first book in March of 1990. Huh. Uh, now, people made a lot of uh, made a lot of the fact that he got a good couple hundred thousand dollar down payment for that book. But what he told me was, he had, compared to what he would have made by building houses, uh, he was taking a loss. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, you say that the in 1997 is when he started seeing the, the, the what I, what I call like the new golf breeze craft, which is the the silver spheres all kind of grouped together around a capsule type. Uh, that, of thing. That's a that's a one time thing. That was 1994, January 1994. 94. Okay, ball type object with the, in his photo with the with the F-15 jet. Um, that was a one time. Uh, I don't think he saw that. Well. He had the one sucking the water up out of the... Maybe, yeah, yeah, that was the water spout photo in April of 94. Right. The, 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 the F-15 UFO photo was January 12th of 1994, I believe, and then April something or other of 94 was the, uh, was, may have also been another spherical type, but I think those are the only ones where you saw got enough uh, image size resolution to, to say that it was a spherical type of, type of thing. Right. Uh, the ones that he got in 96 and 97, I believe, they were more like a top. You know, oh. I imagine a top to look like, uh, okay. sort of like a dome top and a cylinder section and a domed bottom. Okay. The, I, I, and I've seen you present this when I've seen you in past years to give a presentation about some golf breeze stuff. You showed a piece of footage that I think, to me, is... The UFO footage of all time, uh, which is the... Where the object reverses uh, direction? Uh, well, no, the one that... Um, uh, and, and I'm probably remembering this wrong, but it was something about a guy had seen some weird things flitting around outside of his home, and he put the camera down uh, and left for work or something like that. I remember Exler showing me this at his house. Um, and you had, like, what looked like... A silver ball object that comes into it's frame. On it's one side. yeah. I mean, the instant incel- yeah. acceleration of this thing is ridiculous. I've never uh, been told who did that. Really? Apparently, it wasn't Ed. Right. Um, oh, the pseudonym used was Martin Allen. Huh. Land Pugh knows who it is, but he wouldn't tell me. Whoever it was wanted to be absolutely anonymous. Okay. But the way that story goes is 
And this was on 1993 or 4, I believe. It's been a long time since I thought about it. It was written up in the MUFON Journal. Uh huh. Martin Allen, pseudonym, uh, was outside in his garden one day doing something or other outside, and he sees this thing fly overhead, which it looks to him like a cruise missile. And uh, it came back again in the opposite direction or something, I forget exactly. So uh, he started keeping his camera ready, I guess it was. Uh, there was a, I seem to recall a sighting of an object, circular object seen from below looking up, like from a, a stairway, looking at, like from the bottom of the stairs, looking up along the side of the wall to a, a, still, a still photo of a, uh, a circular object with a red dot and a, a red light in the middle of it. Yeah, like a, yeah. Part of this, huh? Right, I remember that. Yeah, absolutely. I can picture but that. Then he, one day or whatever, I don't know, sees this object hovering out over the ocean. This house is not far from the, from the ocean itself. It's on Pensacola Beach, apparently. Somewhere on Pensacola Beach, uh, the south edge of the, the south boundary of Pensacola Beach is the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. He sees this object out over the Gulf, runs and gets his camera, uh, a video camera, and uh, runs up onto the deck of his house, sets the camera on the railing, and starts videotaping this object. After a minute or something like that, uh, suddenly his battery dies. So he somehow manages to quickly change the battery and get it back in. Maybe he had a spare charged battery inside his cam battery, his camera case or whatever. He changes the battery, starts videotaping again. And what you're basically seeing is not a totally uniform background. You can see variations in it as the clouds. What you're looking at are a mist or cloudy, cloudy uh, air moving from right to left, I think it is, anyway, across the field of view, as, uh, you know, as if you were looking into a foggy area above the water. Clouds or, or fog, whatever you want to call it. That's moving. In the center of the field of view, you see this shiny, uh, like a circular dot, a uh, fat dot, um, not really big enough to get any good image details, but it certainly looks like it was a round something or other that was shiny in the sunlight. Right. And it's sitting there jiggling and jiggling a little bit, as you expect, and you can hear the guy breathing <laughs> like that because he, right. had, he had run up to the, he had done some running to get the, his camera to get up onto the, uh, the deck. You hear him breathing, and this thing is jiggling, and all of a sudden, it zip. It, well, if you're not paying attention, you think it disappears. Right. And if you slow it down, you look frame by frame. You see the object jiggling around about an average position, and all of a sudden it starts to move to the right. It moves to the right a little bit, and then in the next frame it moves more. In the next frame it moves more. Each time it moves, it stretches out the image. Right. And by the time, by the fifth frame, the image is stretched right off the edge of the screen. You can, you can say, well, if it was like a 1,000 feet away, nobody knows how far away it was. But if it were a thousand feet away, it was like ten feet in diameter, and by the time it exited the right-hand side of the uh, picture, it was going at Mach two or something. I forget the calculation. <laughs> it's ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> but I've played this a number of times to people, and I say, "Look, if you blink, you're going to miss it." You miss it, yeah, yeah. Um, well, isn't is that, that not led, that led, that was the core 
of the paper that I wrote called Acceleration. I presented at the MUFON Symposium in the oh. late 90s or something. Uh, it used to be on the NIDS website, uh, Bob uh, Bigelow. Okay. Bob Bigelow liked the paper. It was one of the first things that he put on a NIDS site like 10 years ago. Um, I think you can get to it on my site now. The paper called Acceleration uh, points out that uh, what's really important here is not the speed you get to, but how fast you do it. <laughs> yeah. And I argue that extreme acceleration could explain what appears to be a disappearance of something. Sure. If you can accelerate fast enough, you can literally be out of the field of view of a person's central vision in a, quote, blink of an eye. Right. If you can go far enough in a 25th of a second to get out of the center of the field of view, the person has little chance of following it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, I'll tell you, in watching that, and I've watched that hundreds of times, and I don't have a real great copy of it, but uh, it is some of the most surreal-looking shit that I've ever seen, Uh, you know, on video. I mean, for this to be captured, um, it's just, I mean, it's absolutely absurd-looking. That's the Martin Allen video. Ed has a video, which we call the beach video, that was uh, the Thanksgiving Day or something like that? I don't or, remember what date it was, 1994 or something. I think it came yeah. after the Martin Allen one, but the point is that Ed um, went out to Pensacola Beach to see if he could see anything. And he had seen this thing, I think he had seen it earlier. He goes to Pensacola Beach, he stands there, all of a sudden it appears, and he's standing there videotaping this object as a guy walking along the beach. At the same time, this thing is a shiny thing up in the sky. He's looking eastward along the coast of Pensacola Beach, and off in the distance you can see some of the high-rise apartment houses that are there. And he says, if this guy gets close enough, I'm going to tell him to look, at which point this thing just disappears. Now, in that situation, you go frame by frame, and, you know, it's there, and the next frame is gone. If that thing did an acceleration... It got completely out of the field of view in one third of a second at the same time. That's ridiculous. Either that or it just dissolved where it was. Right, right. Um, so Ed has didn't say anything to you this, this past meeting that he had had any other sightings or experiences at all? No, uh, I didn't expect that he would. It was clear from previous, like 10 years, 10 years ago, conversations that he didn't want to tell me anything. He didn't, he didn't want... Because he, he knew by that time that every time he tells me something, uh-oh, investigation, <laughs> and that <laughs> yeah. meant more work, more work for him. Right, he, right. Every time he had a sighting, there was stuff that I asked him to do, and he more or less, maybe grudgingly, but he, more, he basically did whatever I asked. Right. And even up until the 1995, 96, and 97 sightings, when uh, he wanted, he asked me, to, to calculate how big this object was, because in the 1997 sighting, uh, for example, uh, it was maybe only 30 feet from him. Uh, wasn't very big, but he didn't know. Uh, he, he wanted to have an idea of what it was. He had interesting events, interesting aspects of the photos. Like in the 1996 one, I think it was. There is a shadow in the water. Huh. Then cast a shadow. The 1995, July 1995, shadow, what I call the shadow video, where 
you think the Martin Allen one was bizarre, where it disappears at high speed. The shadow video of July 1995, um, the camera is sitting there on a tripod. Ed, for several days, had seen this thing appear. So he decided to just turn the camera on, let it look out the window, and then he'd go back and review every day to see if uh, it picked up anything. And he's got the camera going, and he happens to know there's this object appearing, coming from the west, traveling towards the east. He doesn't touch the camera at all. It just sits there. And after this is all over, he says, gee, I don't know if I got it at all or not. It went to a distance where it actually appears in the field of view, it goes almost halfway across the field of view, reverses direction, and goes off. It comes in from the left, stops, reverses direction, and goes off at the left. Now, oh. just to see, and by the way, this image is large enough so you've got some real structure to the image. You know, you know what it looks like, and it's not somewhat comparable to Ed's craft from years before. But the thing was, when Ed was playing this to me, he wanted me to figure out how big it was and how fast it was moving. I said, well, how the hell am I going to do that? I don't know how far away it was. Right. And I always treat these as, if, well, it could be a hoax. If it were a hoax, how would he do it? Well, I hadn't seen the video when he starts telling me, gee, what's that? And he's looking at the ground level. Now, I have to imagine this scene. What do you see at the bottom, the very bottom, is, is water, the Santa Rosa Sound. You see, you're looking right across the Santa Rosa Sound to the south shore of Gulf Breeze. At the south shore of Gulf Breeze, there's uh, trees all the way along the shore. Trees and houses, trees and houses. It's, not, it's the same scene that you see in the water spout photo, basically. Oh, okay. So, um, you see trees and houses and so on. And then sky, uh, at about the halfway point up the picture, from then on upwards, it's sky, and it's up in the sky area. And you see this object come in from the left, uh, decelerate to zero speed, reverse direction, and accelerate outwards to the left. Oh. Ed is playing this video and talking to me over the phone, and he says, hey, it looks like there's a shadow. And I, a shadow on what, Ed? What do you mean? And he says, on the tree line. And it took me 10, 10 or 15 microseconds to realize what that meant. We knew what time the picture was taken. That meant we knew where the sun was. We could calculate from where the sun is, where that shadow ought to be, and use the shadow as a method of actually triangulating. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. It, it was a bizarre situation, but the shadow, the sun had to come down at a high angle, 40 degrees or something, downwards past the object onto the trees. So I knew that I could calculate how far the damn thing was. It was around 7,000 feet. Jesus. 6,000, I forget exactly. Yeah. And when I got a copy of the video, sure enough, the object moves from right, comes onto the, into the field of view and moves to the right, and you can see the very dim shadow moving right along with it. Oh. And then it reverses direction, and the shadow reverses direction and moves off to the left. Sanio, for Je I don't know if you know who Jeffrey Sanio is. I mentioned him in the past, another sure. photo analyst for the Mutual UFO Network, and uh, one of the best guys around in that business. Um, he was able to bring out that shadow, make some videos where it became entirely clear that the shadow was there, moving to the right and then to the left. And sure enough, I was able to calculate it was doing 500 miles an hour when it came into the field of view, 
decelerated to zero speed relative to us in a um, couple of seconds. I forget it, what it was. <laughs> then accelerated and left the field of view in a couple of seconds at 500 miles an hour approximately. <laughs> this is all, been, I think this was presented in, well, it's all presented in the, I think in the acceleration paper also. Uh, not that many people have seen the video, but they've been able to read about it. Well, there was something bizarre about this that Senior was able to pick up by his techniques of essentially stopping the um, motion of the uh, UFO or doing everything relative to the UFO image itself. He noticed that the shadow image was not perfectly tracking the UFO image. It seemed to lag behind on the way from right to left and, and precede in the light, uh, from right to left. From, from left to right, it was lagging behind. From right to left, it was ahead, I think. Huh. Which is bizarre and leads to the following suggestion that maybe the some sort of a field around the object was actually bending the sunlight. I don't know. That sounds pretty bizarre, but then UFOs are bizarre anyway. <laughs> yeah, this is true. This is true. <laughs> Uh, again, we analyze this from the point of view of could this be a hoax? How in the world would Ed create, uh, well, you could create a moving image of a UFO on the window by having a, painting it on a piece of glass and sliding the piece of glass back and forth. But how the heck are you going to get it to track a shadow on the yeah. trees uh, the same way? Uh, That's crazy. to say it became... Uh, as I have learned over the years, almost anything could be fake if you got the time, money, uh, time, money, capability, uh, equipment, and so on, uh, and, and the knowledge how how to do it. And as sure. far as I could tell, Ed had Ed had the money, but that was about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have one last question for you on, on uh, my behalf here, which is just when you went back to Gulf Breeze last year, uh, or was it earlier this year? Yeah, it was February this year. February. Um, did, did you get any sense was, from the town that there's? Yeah, well, I was just going to say, did, did you get any sense that the town is still a buzz about this in any way, or do, is it just a moot nah. point? Um, I did get to meet very briefly a couple of people who were involved way back then. Uh, Arthur Hufford, one of the witnesses on November 11th, we believe it was, uh, that he was a witness. He and his wife. Bruce Morrison, who was one of the people who saw most of the, almost all of the Bubba sightings, uh, his videos are sort of the canonical Bubba information available. Anyway, um, it was sort of a surrealistic experience to go back there after all these years, go to the places where this stuff happened. Well, things have changed. I go to Shoreline Park. They've got a great big construction there now. You can walk out on... Uh, uh, I don't know if you could even find the area, find the area where Ed did his first stereo picture of a UFO. Wow. Uh, you, get, you could say, well, it was in this area, but there's nothing left <laughs> uh, that you can point to. Uh, no longer any park bench where it used to be a pavilion where, in 1990, the MUFON Symposium was held in Pensacola. And we had a unique situation and that sightings were going on, not so much by Ed, but by other people. One of the amusements of that symposium was to have Philip Class there. Huh. And um, 
this guy Arthur Hufford that I mentioned, he was one of the witnesses. We were one of the one of the drawing cards for the MUFON Symposium was, hey, you'll be able to take a tour of all the sites, all the sighting sites that you've read about in Ed's book. Uh. So they had a bunch of buses, four, three or four buses that were carting people around from one site to the other. And uh, as we got on this tour of the sites, uh, we knew Phil Class was going to get on a bus, and we wanted to make sure that he was on the bus with a witness. Because we wanted to find out whether Edward, whether, whether Phil would actually interview anybody or not. <laughs> <laughs> so we watched very carefully to see which bus he was headed for, and then we told, uh, it had already been prearranged that Arthur Hufford would be the guy who was the, uh, um, the person telling the history, uh, the, uh, on that particular bus that, that Phil was on. Right. So Arthur Hufford got on the bus, told us about, as we were, traveled from site to site, he told us about the, uh, various events of the sites, and he also talked about his own sighting, November 11th. And everybody's waiting waiting, waiting to see when Phil Phil had with him his tape recorder. We were waiting to see when Phil would walk up to Arthur and say, well, you know, well, you please explain to me what you saw. <laughs> well, Phil never interviewed anybody, but we ended up at a pavilion that used to be at uh, Shoreline Park. It's now, if it's the same building, everything else around it has changed. I don't know. I think it's a different building now. Huh. But why not? It, you know, this what I'm talking about happened in 1990, and now it's almost 20 years later. Anyway, uh, Phil and I were at Shoreline Park at the same time with a whole crowd of people around waiting to see what would happen. And we had, there's a picture of us, me holding a, a tape recorder at, next to his mouth and him holding a tape recorder next to my mouth <laughs> <laughs> to make sure we get exact uh, testimony about, um, you know, who, th who thinks what about what? Mm -hmm. But all that stuff, all that stuff is gone. Uh, as I said, you know, in, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of all the bizarre, amazing things that happened back in 1988, 92, or 90, even 96, as, uh, as I'm driving around off breeze, and it's all just who cares. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, there was a book written by a guy by the name of Myers, uh, who did the newspaper stories on Ed back in the late, back in that, starting in 1990. Craig Myers has written his own book uh, two years ago, I guess it was, in which he calls the whole thing a hoax. Huh. Um, I found the book at the library there. Ed's book is there, Myers' book is there. They don't really have a big selection on UFOs. Uh, you would think they would have at least Ed's three books there. Uh, my recollection is they only had one of them. And they had Craig Meyer's book because it was recent, I suppose. They had several copies of that. I skimmed through it. Myers trivialized the whole thing. And, of course, he didn't understand the technicalities of the photography and stuff that, as I said, impressed me. Mm -hmm. So that's the way the situation is. Um, Gulf Breeze is a sleepy non-UFO town, as the, as the situation is right now. No. I don't think they even paid much attention when the UFO hunters showed up. Uh, but the UFO Hunters organization gathered together a bunch of witnesses, including recent witnesses. There was a lot of stuff that was left out of that show. Uh, of course, that's normal situation. Sure. Probably 
tape two and a half to three times what they could actually use. But uh, there are a number of sightings um, that uh, they interviewed people that would have been really interesting to put on, but they didn't. Right. Well, um, I know that when I spoke to Bland Pugh in, in emails a while back, I had asked him what was going on down there right now, and he said, uh, nothing, and, and that when people stopped going to Shoreline Park, that seems to be when the sightings kind of declined, uh, uh, at least at the at the bubble level of things. Well, and the, the bubble level sightings back in 90 to 92 mm-hmm. went along with people going out every night. Uh, you know, even major news media sent correspondence there. Right, and in very in many many cases, the correspondent going there assumed that they were going to be able to trash the whole thing, but they became witnesses. Uh-huh. <laughs> did you did you uh, Bruce did you do you see that as a component to this in in all your years in this? Do you see a component of you know uh, people going actively to seek these things out end up finding them? I'd say in most cases, people going out to seek something don't find anything. Right. Now, the Gulf Breeze situation was perhaps unique or certainly a very rare situation in that regard. Uh, the, one of the guys I call the Gulf Breeze research team, Bruce Morrison, Ann Morrison, his wife, um, and some of the other people whose names escape me at the moment would go out virtually every night, but they would all, there were others who would come in who uh, they would have sightings from anywhere from four to uh, one sighting had over a hundred witnesses. Uh, they were they went out every night on the off chance that they'd see something. The only nights they skipped were the the, the nights when it was freezing in Gulf Breeze, and it actually does get very cold in Gulf Breeze in like January and February. Uh-huh. Um, but they were they were out there, and they were sort of like trained observers. They knew when they were looking at airplanes and so on. They knew when something was strange. Um, they kept on going. Even after July 8th of 1992, I mean July 4th of 1992, was their last sighting of what had been called Bubba. They continued to go out for a number of months afterwards, and they just didn't get anything. Wow. Uh, finally, they, in 93 or 94, I guess they basically gave up. Although there were sightings off and on, it was nowhere near a situation. In, in 90 through 92... There were periods of times where you could almost guarantee a sighting every night. Yeah, yeah. When I went there in September of nineteen, September of nineteen ninety-one, they were having sightings at the rate of two or three a week. That's why I thought it was worth me spending a few hundred bucks to go down there. And yeah. At the very least, I could talk to recent witnesses, even if I didn't see something myself. But I knew there was also a good possibility that I'd see something myself. Yeah. Like I said, I was told that the night before I showed up, there had been a sighting. The night I showed up, there was no sighting. The next night, there was a sighting. <laughs> then there was two more nights when I had to leave, and yeah, and the third night, another sighting. <laughs> right, yeah. So, I mean, there you go. Yeah. Well, Bruce, um, I think we're done. So, okay. I mean, we could go on for hours on this stuff, I but uh, Who, who's Richard Doty? Oh, wait, no, that's, that's the other <laughs> I, uh, I need to uh, fry your brain. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, thank you uh, so very much for for coming on, and uh, uh, and I know I speak for our audience. Mention my, w- mention you know. my website. 
Yes, please do that. That's www.brumac, B-R-U-M-A-C, dot H-K, number eight, letter K, dot com. Brumac, dot K, dot com. If you just Google on my name, you will, Bruce McAbee, you will uh, eventually find my website. www.brumac.8k.com. And we'll have and that actually. Got some stuff on Gulf Breeze. It's got stuff on Bubba. Uh, it's got the ma- magnetic UFO case from Gulf Breeze, which had nothing to do with Ed, um, and some other sightings, and, of course, a lot of stuff, uh, New Zealand and astronaut sightings and um the uh, Japan Airline 1628, largest report ever done on that particular event, which has been playing, uh, been important in the uh, in the disclosure project because of uh, um, Mr. Callahan, who was the uh, investigating officer for the FAA. FAA. Um, uh, he's been one of the disclosure witnesses, and what he's been disclosing about is the uh, uh, what happened, what he was personally aware of. That happened as a result of the Japan Airlines case in November that occurred in November 1986. This even things up to Stephenville, Texas. Huh. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of stuff there, and I hope uh, everybody visits. Yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be linked to your name actually on our homepage where we're advertising the show. So uh, mm-hmm. everybody check it out. And, and and Bruce, I think I speak pretty much for everybody that listens to this show is that we thank you for everything you've done over all these years of doing this stuff. Indeed. Because uh, you know, uh, for my money, you're one of the guys that uh, has done the most legwork, backbreaking work, eye strain work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so so thanks a lot for doing all that you do for this stuff. I really mean yeah, that. Well, thank you for thank you for saying that. Yep, indeed. And thank you for listening at UPRN 105.3 Waterloo 5.3 New Orleans And on the internet